This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week in our 258th episode, we're covering the third day of SVP, as well as some other dinosaur news from around the world. We also have an interview with Dr. Karen Chin, and we have Dinosaur of the Day, Anserimimus. This week we're recording our podcast from New Zealand, Auckland to be specific, because we're stopping here briefly on the way back to the U.S., So you might notice that it sounds a little bit differently. It's a little echoey in this room. (laughs) We'll do our best in post-production to make it sound nice, but it might sound a little bit different. We're also recording this on Melbourne Cup Day, and there's been a fair amount of fireworks celebrating horse racing, I guess. So you might hear a little bit of that too. (laughs) But before we get into our episode, we want to thank some of our patrons who are the main thing driving the podcast right now. And this week, we'd like to thank Scotty, Megan Dixon, Kessler, Rhinosaurus, Morgan Eklov, Risa, Kelly, Manda, Laurasaurus, Timmy, James Pasco, Gabe, Courtney, TRX Dinosaurs, and Michael. And Michael just joined, so thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, everybody, for all your support. We really appreciate it, and you're the reason we were able to do our epic road trip around Australia. And of course, also go to SVP, which we're still covering. Yeah. So if you'd like to join this amazing group of people, then you can by going to patreon.com slash inodino. We have lots of reward levels. You can get a shout out like all these wonderful people just did, or you can get just access to our Discord and premium content if that's what you're interested in, or you can get ad-free versions of the show which cut out a lot of this stuff if you're tired of hearing it. (laughs) Then there's also a higher level where you get our new books when they come out. So no matter what you're interested in, there's a level for you. The third day of SVP had a lot of really great talks after a slow Thursday, Friday really picked up. And the first one that we can talk about that we saw (laughs) was by Ryan Felice. And he was talking all about the different types of evolution the different branches of dinosaurs went through. And then basically we saw some of them had large bony ornamentation. There were some that had really unique jaw joints or skull shape in order to handle different feeding strategies. Some of them had really large muscles. Some of them had really small brains or big brains and therefore different encephalization, which is a fancy word for saying how smart they were. But the result of the Cretaceous Paleogene mass extinction is that avians are all that's left, and they might be constrained by just a few examples that survived the extinction. So even though we're seeing that 
birds evolved from an archosaur, they are really just a very small subset of dinosaurs. And therefore, we can't learn as much about dinosaurs as we might want to by just looking at this one lineage. That makes sense. Although it seems like we can still learn a lot. Yeah, especially about theropods. But sauropods, for example, are ankylosaurs. Oh, true. Not so much. Or I guess even theropods like T-Rex that had huge jaw muscles and all the other crazy adaptations because by the time T-Rex was around, the branch that turned into birds was well separated. After that, we heard a talk by Matteo Fabri, and he presented on a really interesting evo-devo approach, basically looking at how skull and brain shapes sort of interact while the animal is developing. That's the devo part of Evo Devo and the Evo part is the evolution part. And we try to tease out some evolutionary changes by looking at the development of an embryo and possibly by turning on and off or otherwise just monitoring different genes that interact with the embryo while it develops. And what he saw was that most of a bird stays pretty general looking until the end of development meaning they all have kind of similar looking arms and legs and spines and eyes and all that kind of stuff. But the brain and the brain case start to look pretty different earlier on in the evolution slash development <laughs> in this case. So the brain actually forms early because it takes a long time to develop a brain and birds only incubate from around a month to three months. So they have to get started pretty much right away on developing the brain. And then what happens is the brain has its specific sort of shape and the skull and face forms around the brain mm. to match the shape of the brain is basically the way he described it. So the shapes of birds' heads are based on their brains? Yeah, that's how he was putting it, especially in the young ones. Because if you imagine sort of like baby humans, mm -hmm. right? They come out and their head has to be so big because they got this big brain and our brain doesn't grow that much more than the other parts of our bodies. Whereas like our arms get much, much bigger, but they have these big bobble heads because they have to already have most of their adult brain in their head. So I think birds are kind of similar and they have the similar sort of like small snout compared to their big head and big eyes that you expect to see in an animal. At least you see that in birds. I don't know about all dinosaurs. But he did find that all diapsids follow a similar pattern of development where the brain triggers the ossification of the skull around it. So really it is like the brain literally forms and then once it's nearing completion of forming, there are chemical changes that start the process of forming the skull around the brain. So it's literally <laughs> forming around the brain in that order. It's not the brain forming inside the skull. There are some differences between what we see in birds and other archosaurs, basically meaning crocodilians. And what they see is that the skull and brain and associated muscles develop differently over time during the development of the embryo, but it has the same general trend of brain first, then skull kind of around it. So pretty interesting. It's going to be useful when we start genetically engineering dinosaurs to know this <laughs> tidbit, I think, but that might be a while till we do that. Up next was a talk by David Button, and he was covering basically early dinosaur cranial evolution. So what early dinosaur heads look like and why they changed. Sensing a pattern in these morning sessions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he pointed out that the first 50 million years of dinosaur 
evolution, we see a lot of diversity starting to pop up in these head shapes. They're changing all over the place. But we don't have any good evidence of what these different animals were eating at the time. Essentially, we can look at the shape of the head and the type of the teeth and all that kind of stuff, but it can actually be a pretty poor predictor of the behavior of the animal. And without gut contents and things like that, you can't really prove what they were eating. So what he did was made models of the bones and muscles to estimate the muscle size and force that these different skulls would have had, and then compared the bite force using a size adjustment. So in other words, the volume of the skull, because he wanted to compare animals of a similar size, how strong their bites would have been, and therefore is that skull shape good for a certain sort of behavior and you know skull muscle size kind of thing. What he found was that the highest mechanical advantage of the dinosaurs he looked at was in Heterodontosaurus that's compared to Plateosaurus and Coelophysis, which is kind of weird because Heterodontosaurus is often thought to be an omnivore because heterodont means it has different types of teeth, whereas Coelophysis we think was a carnivore. So you'd think maybe it would have had stronger bite force, or if it had to grind up its food and for some reason it was incredibly tough and needed a strong bite force, maybe Plateosaurus would have been a stronger bite force, but it wasn't. <laughs> so what they found was that this stronger mechanical advantage in bite force was at the expense of jaw closure speed. So Heterodontosaurus was likely eating plants was their conclusion because it couldn't bite, even though it could bite hard and it had a strong advantage kind of leverage on its teeth when it was biting. It wasn't fast enough. Yeah. So if it's trying to catch prey running away or something like that, it might not have been as good. So maybe Coelophysis had that advantage. Weirdly though, Plateosaurus had a pretty similar set of characteristics to Coelophysis. So they were saying maybe it was an opportunistic omnivore. So Plateosaurus maybe was snapping at prey that was running by, even if it was eating a lot of plants as well. Or alternatively, maybe Plateosaurus just inherited this ancestral skull shape and ability to catch prey, but it didn't actually care about catching prey and it just kind of had that skull left over from its ancestors that were catching prey. All that is to say, early dinosaurs might look alike, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they were doing the same things with their skulls. Or as David put it, quote, anatomical similarity does not equal functional similarity in early dinosaurs, end quote. Yep. Well, they all branched out in their own paths. Yeah. Up next was a talk by Randall Ermes, who was looking at basically when dinosaurs first <laughs> showed up in the fossil record. So specifically, they were looking at whether they showed up in the Carnian, which is in the late Triassic, during a pluvial event, which was around 231 million years ago. So what they did was they looked at all the evidence of dinosaurs from that time period. And they point out that almost all of the data comes from the Tethys area, which is the area of basically southern Laurasia, I would describe it as. It's, the world was quite a bit different in the Triassic because India was still down hanging out near Antarctica and Madagascar way down there. And then the Tethys Sea was kind of where India is now, but also stretched obviously up towards Europe and then over towards the rest of Asia where India wasn't at the time, and then also sort of that coast of Africa where Egypt and stuff is now. So it changed over time, but that's basically where the Tethys Sea was at the time. And so obviously, if we're only looking at that one spot, and that's where a lot of our evidence is from the Carnian, 
we're not getting a very global view of where dinosaurs were. And if dinosaurs weren't all over the place in the Triassic, we might be missing when dinosaurs first evolved because we just don't have fossil data from that time period. But from what we do have, we see that in the Southern Alps, there are footprint records of dinosaurs from after the Carnian pluvial event, and there weren't any dinosaurs before. The similar story in Northwest Argentina in the Isquigolasto formation. There are four sites from before that they looked at. None of them had dinosaurs. There are three sites during the CPE or Carnian pluvial event <laughs> with a couple of dinosaurs. And then after the CPE, we do start to see a lot of dinosaurs all over the place. But they pointed out that the sample size is very small. So getting a pattern out of it is problematic. And also, even the footprints that we do have are just tridactyl. So we've assumed that they're dinosaur trackways, but they could just be some other animal that has three toes, including something called Poposaurus, which is an early crocodile relative and could make pretty similar prints. So there's that whole issue of was it a real dinosaur? Was it a dinosaur form? Or was it even just something that was sort of dinosaur-ish and had similar feet, but not even really that closely related? I guess it's complicated. Yeah, especially with a lack of data. Mm -hmm. Up next was a talk by Evan Seda looking at dinosaur display structures and specifically the question of were dinosaur display structures used for species recognition or were they some kind of sexual dimorphism where basically we're assuming males were trying to stand out from the pack by having more fantastic <laughs> display structures. And the reason we assume that it would probably be males trying to stand out is because, as Evan put it during the talk, if you look at game theory, <laughs> you'd assume that the parent that has to put more energy into raising the young is going to want to select the best possible mate because they're going to put all this effort into it. So in the case of crocodilians and modern birds, we see that they both have the female selecting the male and birds have different all sorts of different display <laughs> mechanisms sometimes they're like dances sometimes they're feather patterns sometimes it's just jumping around i guess that counts as dancing yeah <laughs> sometimes it's mimicking or creating display structures like really elaborate nests yeah so there's a ton of ways <laughs> you can impress a female bird, although it has to be specific to that female, obviously. The species all do all sorts of different things. Crocodilians are a little more simple. It's basically just the males are a lot bigger, and I guess the females are just impressed by the size of the male crocodilians, <laughs> which you see in a lot of mammals too. But either way, the question becomes, how can we tell if dinosaurs did this just by looking at their fossils? So... If you just were trying to piece together whether male and female humans were different sexes by looking at our skeletons, statistically, if you had the similar sample size that you get to a lot of dinosaurs, an average male would have to be about 25 centimeters or nearly a foot taller than the average woman to come across as a clear, separate, statistically significant signal to show that the males were larger than the females. And obviously, males are not an average of 25 centimeters taller than the average female. And we're actually quite a bit different in size compared to other animals. <laughs> so maybe there's another way that we could tease apart the data to find these differences. What Evan ended up looking at was basically the allometric characteristics. So it's 
basically looking for things that changed as the animal ages, because a lot of times these sexual characteristics start to really kick into effect as animals get older. You see that all over the place. Basically, when we go through puberty, that's when men start to get bigger than women, or maybe boys get bigger than girls. <laughs> I'm not really sure. It's weird. But before that, boys and girls look pretty similar. And then afterwards, we start to have all sorts of different stuff going on. And you see that all over the place. So it might be the case with triceratops, for example, that these horns grow out. And that happens to be this new display structure that females don't have, or maybe the frill is bigger or something to that effect. They can also grow differently depending on if they're an ornament or an armament. So an ornament is something like a peacock fan of feathers. It serves no purpose other than to just show off and impress a female. Whereas an armament could be something like big horns that you might use to sort of bash into a rival mate to scare them off and be the big winner who now gets to mate with all the females. But I think we need to do a little more research before we figure out exactly how differently these things develop. And then we're pretty confident, for example, that Triceratops horns are armaments because they don't seem to be useful for scaring off predators. But we do see horn marks in Triceratops frills that appear to be from other Triceratops horns. So it seems like they're combating with one another, which is pretty good evidence of an armament. He also talked a fair amount about some of the different statistical approaches you could use while trying to separate out the different data sets, but that's a little bit too deep <laughs> for this podcast. Suffice it to say that if you draw best fit lines of them growing up as they age, then you can look at the residuals, if you know what that means, and then that can help you identify which group is which. Up next was a talk by Eleanor Strickson, who is looking at why dinosaurs sometimes had small front feet, even when they were quadrupedal and quadrupedal all the time. And she started out by giving some examples of differences in foot size and heteropody, as it's officially called. Some of the reasons that modern animals have different sizes of front versus hind feet is if they do a lot of digging. For example, you might need a different size feet for the feet that are doing the digging. Or if they're swimming, the feet that are kicking through the water might end up being a lot larger. But both of these examples are pretty unlikely for sauropods. I mean, they did a little bit of digging, we think. At least some of them did with their hind feet for burying nests. But it wasn't like a major part of their behavior where they would definitely need huge feet all the time <laughs> in the back versus the front. So maybe it was linked to the center of mass. If the center of mass is kind of farther back over the hips, that would lead to more pressure over the back feet. And so then maybe their back feet got bigger and then that would equalize the pressure because now you have more area. And since pressure is force divided by area, there's more force from the center of mass. It evens things out. So that's one potential option for why sauropods had larger back feet. But we also see much larger hind feet in things like ornithischians. And in their case, their, their front limbs can be even smaller, so that might not explain all of it. On top of that, there's soft tissue, which would have a large impact. For example, if you look at like an elephant foot, the skeleton of the foot isn't all that big, but then there's this huge fleshy pad around it. And we're starting to think that maybe sauropods has something similar, in which case that would change the pressure on the feet quite a bit. So in order to test what kind of pressure they had on their hind feet versus their front feet, they had different zoo animals walk on pressure mats to test the differences. That sounds fun. Yeah. 
<laughs> they had some pretty good pictures of it. And what they found was that reptiles had feet about the same size in the front versus the back, but with the center of mass difference, the pressure was significantly different. So maybe that's not the biggest impact. And then they also found that cursorial animals, meaning animals that run quickly or are just generally quick, also have a similar sort of relationship where basically they have more pressure on their hind feet. So it sounds like for further research, it'd be good to look at foot pads and also the postures of the animals. Sure. Yeah, that would definitely help to figure out where the pressure was and maybe why feet are different sizes. <laughs> Up next was a talk by Kimberly Chappelle, and they pointed out that Massospondylus is the most common dinosaur in South Africa. We think it is a biped, which obviously makes it a good dinosaur to study because you're not just going to be looking at some weird individual that happened to fossilize. You have a pretty good idea about what it looked like and how it maybe changed as it grew up, like we think in this case, because we have a growth series too. So we think it was a biped its whole life. We've talked about that a bit before in the past. There have been previous proposals that have started out quadrupedal and then became bipedal, but now we think probably bipedal its whole life. But in order to check that, they cut up 46 bones in order to check the histology. And again, that's when you take a really thin section of bone and then you can look at those inner details of it under a microscope. And what they found was that the largest adults had lower growth rates than the younger individuals. And there was also less vascularized bone. So it was nearing the completion of its growth. All the bones had lags except for the smallest specimen. And kind of strangely, they don't grow much faster as juveniles than as adults. So they have a relatively steady growth. No stretch marks. I guess. <laughs> or maybe all stretch marks all the time. <laughs> <laughs> However, they did find that the lags had really inconsistent spacing. So on average, there wasn't a big difference between juveniles and adults, but it was all over the place. So it might grow a ton when it was six years old and then not much when it was seven and then a ton again when it was like 13 years old. So it's just kind of all over the map. In addition, they also found that the humerus and femur grew at around the same rate. So even though it might have been a little bit inconsistent. It didn't show that the arms were growing any faster than the legs, or really the legs faster than the arms, which is what you'd expect if it was shifting from quadrupedal to bipedal, because you're not using your arms as much for walking around, so your arms wouldn't need to grow as much, but your legs would as your body got bigger to support that extra weight. Yeah, that whole shift in body mass, too. You mean the center of mass? Yes. I suppose so. As to why there was this really inconsistent lag size, they proposed that maybe it was flexible in its growth rates, being a quote-unquote recovery taxa. So I think of different animals that are really good at living in crazy, harsh environments. So there are things like water bears or something where they can basically get frozen for thousands of years and then pop out and start living again. So you'd imagine for all that time, it's not growing at all, <laughs> then it starts growing again. Maybe Massospondylus was sort of a lesser version of that, where it could, in a year where it didn't have a lot of food, just grow a little bit less. And then when there's abundant food everywhere, just grow a bunch and catch up with all that lost time. Very or, adaptive. Yeah. And that could be a result of the unstable environment that was going on during the Triassic-Jurassic boundary when it was alive. Up next was a talk by John Scanella, 
who we interviewed a really long time ago. <laughs> but as a quick reminder, he's one of the people who proposed that Triceratops and Taurosaurus are actually the same genus, and Taurosaurus just represents the final adult stage of Triceratops. And there's still a debate about that because I have a news item later about <laughs> Taurosaurus. <laughs> yes. So not everybody uses just the name Triceratops, but if you go to the Museum of the Rockies, where John is the curator, you will not see the name Taurosaurus unless it's just there to explain that Taurosaurus is an adult Triceratops because that's the stance that they have. <laughs> and he started the talk with a really good summary of the differences that we see as Triceratops grows and then potentially ultimately turning into Taurosaurus. So as Triceratops grows up, you see its horns completely change direction, which is something that I always forget about. So its horns curve back when it's young, sort of up towards its frill. And then as it gets older, they start to curve forward. So its horns are constantly remodeling. And unfortunately, that means that even though we have a lot of Triceratops skulls to look at, we don't have any good bone that we can slice through and see the age of it. Because a horn in a typical animal might have lags in it, if you're lucky, and it would be a useful thing to slice up and see the age of the animal. But that doesn't happen in Triceratops because they're constantly changing direction. The other parts of the skull will be a lot harder to slice through and see concentric rings because, you know, it's like a flat <laughs> surface. It's a lot harder to find lags and something like that. Because of that, we've never actually seen how long a Triceratops lives and at what ages their traits start to change. So, what John and his team have done is in recent quarries around Triceratops, they started expanding the area that they looked for bones. So typically, say you find a Triceratops skull, like a little bit of horn or a little bit of frill sticking out of the dirt, you'd dig down and you'd find the frill, and then maybe you'd dig out a meter or so around the fossil and hope to find another bone, like a neck vertebra that used to be attached to that skull. And then if you found that, you'd dig in that direction a little farther and see if you could find more of a skeleton. But if you didn't find it in that first meter, you'd just stop and you'd say, okay, well, we found this great skull, so at least we have that. Take it back to your lab and be happy. But what they decided is, no, <laughs> this isn't good enough. We need to find these bones. And since the skull is so huge and heavy, it's reasonable to think that it might not end up right next to the lighter bones. And especially if the thing's getting scavenged a little bit, they might get spread out some more. So they started expanding this quarry by much, much more <laughs> and digging out a lot farther from the skull than they used to. As a result, they found quite a few skeletons of some Triceratops specimens, and he presented on a few of them there. So the first one that he pointed out was a relatively small juvenile named MOR2951, if you're interested. It had two lags, meaning it was probably around two years old. It's hard to say. And we can count the lags now because we found a femur, and that's a good bone for checking lags and finding out how old the dinosaur is, unlike the skull. They found another individual that he described as having subtriangular epiossifications and seven lags. And subtriangular epiossifications is a really fancy way of saying that it had these fancy ornaments that went around the edge of its frill that were nearly triangular. So if you imagine a typical Ceratopsian skull with a big frill out there, this one had some cool ornamentation around the edge of it. 
there were a couple more individuals. I'm not going to go in depth into all of them. Sabrina pointed out that might get a little boring. <laughs> I think she's right. But what you generally see is these epiosification start to fuse down towards the frill. So until they're nearly flat with the frill itself. So they're kind of getting less ornamented over time. You see the horn start to curve from pointing towards the frill to pointing downwards. And that whole process takes from when there were two lags up until there are about 13 to 19 lags. And that's an individual that they're estimating was around 21 to 25 years old, at which point it looked like it was nearly skeletally mature. And then beyond that, there was even one that didn't have any lags that they could count because the bone looks so solid. <laughs> it's just like very, very adult solidified bone. And it appears that it also verifies the torosaurus being an adult triceratops because even though the largest one doesn't have holes in its frill, it does have some depressions where the holes ultimately are in a torosaurus frill. So it might be starting to form there. So the coolest thing about this to me is that if we find a good series of torosaurs or even just we can do histology on a couple of torosaurus bones, we can now check the age. And if they're older than what we're seeing in these triceratops, which gets to around 21 years old as an adult, then we'll know that, oh, Taurosaurus is always in the most adult phase and they're all older than the Triceratops we've seen, or at least at the very old end of the Triceratops that we've seen. Whereas if we find a bunch of Taurosaurus limb bones that are six years old, <laughs> but they have this big skull with holes in it, then that would be really good evidence that Taurosaurus and Triceratops are different genus. So we have some a good starting point here to really start to nail down whether they're a different genus or not. Up next was a talk by Claire Buller, and I believe she was also the author on a paper about Cetacosaurus that we talked about recently. Basically, at around four years old, Cetacosaurus switched from a quadruped to a biped, we think, and there's this sort of consistent shift in the angle of the semicircular canals in its head we talked about. But the brain cases of Ceratopsians became much more consolidated and robust as they evolved, to use their language, meaning it's a lot harder to see because it's encased in all this hard triceratops or other large ceratopsian skull, and it's hard to get at. But if you scan it, you can see that the anterior semicircular canal shrank over the Triassic. So that's part of the inner ear that points towards the front of the animal. And in addition, the lower part of the brain case was reduced, basically meaning that the bottom of the brain was shrinking. And they think that's likely to make way for huge neck muscles, hmm. the huge neck muscles that you need when you have this massive skull that weighs who knows how much, especially depending on if it had extra coverings of keratin or whatever on top of it. And yeah, so the brain was literally shrinking to get out of the way of this huge... <laughs> skull that was growing. There are more important things to, to create. <laughs> yes. If you can't mate and impress a mate, then it doesn't matter how big your brain is, turns out. Fortunately, in humans, we can use our brains to impress mates. We don't just need to rely on a huge head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not really sure how impressive huge heads are, actually. <laughs> Especially ones with frills. <laughs> yes. But if you're a triceratops, really that big head is all you need. Shifting away from Triceratops, but I guess to a sort of similar group of dinosaurs, we had Lucy Leahy talking about ankylosaurs. Oh. Yeah. 
Garrett's face lit up. <laughs> it's always good to hear about ankylosaurs. And she was specifically talking about ankylosaurs from Australia, which apparently has the best ankylosaur record from, from Gondwana, which is crazy because the record from Australia is not very good. But it's, but it's like, getting better every day. And it's better than what they have in South America and, and Africa, apparently. And they talked about three different types of ankylosaurs from Australia. There's Minmi. There's also Kunbarasaurus, which used to be called Minmi, but then recently got separated out. And then there's a third one called the Julia Creek specimen. So not the name of a genus yet. Correct. Yeah, this is just a nickname and a locality, I guess. The most interesting thing is that the Julia Creek specimen has what's described as beautifully articulated ossicles. And both Kumbara and the Julia Creek specimen have sheets of tendons across the pelvis, which haven't been found at all elsewhere. So there are literally tendons running across the hips. We don't know why, but they're there. And the way Lucy put it was, this is a good example of why you don't invite Australians to a party, because things get messy. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll we'll have to wait until this paper gets officially published till we find out more about the Julia Creek specimen. But for now, apparently its closest relative is Mimorapelta, which is a Jurassic North American ankylosaur. Again, pretty messy and weird, but it's always good to find more ankylosaurs anyway. Yeah. And one other thing Lucy mentioned was that ankylosaurs are known from all continents except Africa. So Garrett, your earlier comment, that would explain why uh, there's no good specimens from Africa. Yeah. <laughs> and I think there's barely anything from South America. So yeah, Australia is the best of Gondwana, like most of the world at the time. They've got good ankylosaurs. They've got good sauropods. Relatively speaking, I guess. I don't know about good sauropods. There are much better sauropods in other parts of Gondwana. True. Okay, I rephrase to they've got big sauropods. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> better and better all the time, though. Up next was a talk by Wenjie Zheng, and he was talking about Leoningosaurus, another ankylosaur. Ooh. Yeah. And <laughs> specifically, some of the weird details about Leoningosaurus. For example, it was found with fish skeletons in its ribcage, which might mean that it was aquatic or semi aquatic. Or it could also mean that it was just found with fish that had got mixed in with the body as it was getting fossilized. But they recently found an individual which was roughly twice the size of the holotype, at least based on the length of its femur. And fortunately, a farmer noticed the specimen while working and then brought it to the IVPP. So we got a lot of information about it. But we don't have all the information that we might have found if a professional paleontologist had dug it up. So... Hopefully we can get enough information to fill in some gaps of our knowledge about Leoningosaurus. For now, we can tell that it looks like it's probably an ankylosaurid rather than just an ankylosaurian, <laughs> which is what we were saying before. And they also found some armor, although it's poorly preserved. And another individual, third individual, that appears to be less than one year old and has highly vascular bone. So that's pretty cool. Because I haven't, I don't remember hearing much about these perinatal or neonatal ankylosaurs before. It's pretty cool. What did a baby ankylosaur look like? What kind of armor did it have? Cute armor. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> like a baby turtle. 
And up last for our dinosaur talks in SVP on the third day, aka Friday, was a talk by Aaron Dreyer. And he was basically looking at the old question of, did pachycephalosaurs, the ones with the big bony dome heads, actually use those domes to butt into one another as a form of intraspecific combat or other sort of budding mechanisms? And he started out by pointing out the obvious, which is bone is metabolically expensive, as the scientists like to put it. And therefore, you have to have a good reason to have it because it's going to make you eat a lot more and also... Just takes up a lot of your resources. Yes. So you better have a good reason for having this huge (laughs) bone dome on the top of your head, especially when you could just grow some feathers or a big fleshy thing on the top of your head if you're just trying to show off how big you are. So to test whether it was used for intraspecific combat, they looked in really close detail at the domes themselves. And what they found was that there was a lot of remodeling and healing happening within this bone. And it wasn't just osteomyelitis, in other words, an infection. And it showed one specimen, which they dubbed the sad potato, which (laughs) yeah, it showed a huge number of healed injuries from the top of the head. And only the back of the head still looks at all normal. What a sad potato. Yes. They also found how ships lacunae at an injured area, which is used to resorb bone while the animal is still alive. So it's not something that you would see if it died from a big head trauma. It's something that's easily accidentally removed during fossil prep. However, obviously they found it in this case. But unfortunately, it doesn't necessarily mean that the lesions were caused by trauma, for example, butting heads. It could be any kind of injury that led to, you know, resorbing some bone and then replacing it. There are a lot of things that could have gone wrong. (laughs) Yes. And the bone was also arranged in what they call strained gradients. Basically, the vessels come to a point near the top of the head. So if you imagine like the bone is actually kind of arranged like the grain in a tree, in sort of a pyramidal shape pointing towards the top of the head. And maybe the direction of that grain was used to redirect stress when it hit at the top of the head, sort of down towards the side without just smashing all of the energy into the the spine. So maybe it helped redistribute the stress by actually the pattern of the bone growth in the skull and in the dome. So it's pretty interesting. And I'd I'd love to see other takes on this and maybe some more specimens to be (laughs) examined because the whole question of whether pachycephalosaurus bumped heads is always an ongoing debate. Yeah, probably one of the more well-known ones. And in non-SVP news, got a little item about Taurosaurus, which goes a little bit against what Garrett was saying John Scanilla had talked about with the Triceratops and the growth series. So in Casper, Wyoming, the Tate Geological Museum now has Nicole the Taurosaurus on display. And they're very adamant that Nicole is a Taurosaurus and not a Triceratops. So Nicole was bitten by a predator, possibly a T-Rex, and Nicole has bite marks on the left side of the skull. The holes near the bite mark were probably where the wound was infected. But there are signs that Nicole had started to heal. It's, quote, one of the largest and most complete, end quote, taurosaurus skull, and it was found by Dr. Kent Sundell from Casper College while on a field trip, who'd found the left horn eroding out of the ground. Students and volunteers collected fossils from the site in seven days after it was found, and it took three years to prepare. 
So going back to the Taurosaurus triceratops debate, Casper College Museum's director, Patty Finkel, said that Taurosaurus was larger and had two natural holes in the frill and that there are distinctions in the nose and beak areas. Nicole's frill is heart-shaped and was named Nicole in honor of the Nicolazin family who donated the skull. Interesting. I know John would just say, yeah, that's what an adult triceratops looks like. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, so it just depends who you talk to. Yeah. In London, the Natural History Museum is starting a new Ceratopsian phylogeny project to study their evolution, and they're now taking applications from students. So the goal is to, quote, build a total group super matrix phylogeny of Ceratopsian dinosaurs and use it to examine macroevolution and paleobiogeography in the group, end quote. So if you're interested, we've got a link. I love a super matrix. It always reminds me of the one at the Utah Museum of Natural History. It's not really a super matrix, but it's a super cool matrix. It's a great visual. (laughs) Yeah. I guess it's not really a matrix so much as a cladogram, but hanging ceratopsian skulls on a wall is always cool. In Austria, they're releasing dinosaur euros. Ooh. Yeah, it's in their Super Source series. So there's 12 glow-in-the-dark coins, and each one's worth three euros. And the dinosaurs include Deinonychus, Argentinosaurus, Microraptor, Ankylosaurus, T-Rex, Therizinosaurus, Pachycephalosaurus, Ornithomimus, and then other animals, which they acknowledge are not dinosaurs. And that was nice of them. And that includes Mosasaurus. I couldn't find too many details. I'm not sure when they'll be released or if they've already been released. That's really cool. I wish there were American coins that had dinosaurs on them. Maybe someday. There's Australian ones. Canadian. Canadian. Now Austrian. Well, European, really. No American ones. (laughs) (laughs) You never know. We've got stamps. I guess. (laughs) Next, Mattel Films is partnering with Daniel Kaluuya's production company, and Daniel starred in the movie Get Out, and they're making a live-action Barney the Dinosaur movie. What? Yeah. Daniel said, quote, Barney was a ubiquitous figure in many of our childhoods. Then he disappeared into the shadows, left misunderstood. We're excited to explore the compelling modern-day hero and see if his message of I love you, you love me can stand the test of time. (laughs) So I'm very curious to see how they're going to portray Barney the T-Rex. Yeah, that just reminds me of that movie Death to Smoochie. With Robin Williams and (laughs) Edward Norton. (laughs) I wonder if it'll have a similar sort of dark tilt to it. It's really hard to say. (laughs) I also heard recently that in Dubai, there are some brunch places that are competing for attention. And one of them has Barney at it. It's like a eat brunch here. We have Barney, Hmm. which I think is a pretty funny promotion. (laughs) (laughs) Because if you're looking for a cuddly T-Rex. Yeah. Yeah, why not? Last, we've got a quick update on Jurassic World 3. So actress DeWanda Wise from She's Gotta Have It will be playing some sort of leading role in the movie. There's no other details yet. Also, Mamadou Ache from Sorry for Your Loss has signed for a leading role, which also has no other details. <laughs> but we do know that the characters Ian Malcolm, Ellie Sattler, and Alan Grant will be in the film. So that's pretty really? exciting. That's yeah. awesome. Everybody's been waiting for them to make a reprieve for years. Yeah. So that's really cool. When Ian Malcolm's part was so small last time. Yeah. Hopefully it's bigger, along with the other two. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. 
As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our interview with Dr. Karen Chin. We're chatting at SVP with Dr. Karen Chin, who is an associate professor of geological sciences at the University of Colorado Boulder and curator of paleontology at the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History. And she's an expert in coprolites. Did I say it the way you say it? Coprolites are coprolites. It's just (laughs) fossilized feces. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Well, yeah, thanks so much. So we, well, I saw your talk Oh no, was that yesterday? Two days ago? The days I think are blurry. It was yesterday, wasn't <laughs> Two days ago. Two days Two ago. Two days ago. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I thought it was so interesting the th- amount of things you can learn from the fossil feces. <laughs> yes. You can learn things about diet, mm-hmm. but I think we're learning that you can learn a lot more information about environments and trophic webs and, and things like that. So. It's exciting because I think we're just beginning to tap what we can learn from coprolites. Mm. Cool. So I didn't get a chance to see your talk because I was stuck in the other room listening to other good talks. But <laughs> So uh, maybe not stuck. But yeah, not yeah. stuck. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's lots of amazing stuff going on here. But so other than what they eat, so how? what else can you learn from the coprolite? Well, you can learn a variety of things and, and different specimens have different potential in terms of what they can tell you. Sometimes it's simply about the diet. Sometimes it's about the taphonomic process. For example, I I did talk about how we found muscle tissue, preserved muscle tissue in a a tyrannosaur, not not T-Rex, but a tyrannosaur coprolite. And through that study, we learned that these 
these fossils lithify very quickly, probably on your order of weeks, mm -hmm. because we had meat, basically, <laughs> that passed through the, the dinosaur and then was fossilized very quickly. Wow. So we can learn about taphonomy. We can sometimes find out about organisms that are living in the same ecosystem, but we can't see them because they don't preserve well. Mm -hmm. Some people are learning, are recovering parasite remains from, from coprolites, which opens up a whole new kind of trophic pathway that we don't have a lot of fossil evidence for in the fossil record. Mm -hmm. But it just so happens that many parasite propagules are shed in feces. Wow. So it's perfect that, <laughs> that you can preserve coprolites because if they are well-preserved and they don't diagenetically alter too much, we can see those. Mm -hmm. And then we can also tell things about the environment. And one of the things I talked about in, in my presentation was we have recovered some lipid biomarkers, mm -hmm. glycerol, dialkyl glycerol tetraethers, or GDGTs, I can't <laughs> say either. <laughs> um, but these are good proxies for, for paleoclimate oh, parameters, wow. mm -hmm. largely in terms of temperature, but they can tell us other things too. It's a good paleoproxy because they can provide information about paleoclimate when we don't have good fossils that provide oxygen isotope hmm. data for temperatures. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of, it, it's a very complex geochemical study that the first author, James Super, wrote about. But the part that I found particularly interesting is that we could compare the climate signals from the sediments with climate signals from the coprolites. Wow. And when you think about that, if you take sediment samples, those are highly time averaged. So if you take just a, a few millimeters, you might be talking about, well, we don't know, hundreds <laughs> or millions of years, we don't know. Mm -hmm. But some of the coprolites had lots of plankton in them, um, diatoms. So that suggests that these animals were feeding right in the water column. So basically it was a snapshot in time. So you could compare the temperature signals from the sediments with those from the coprolites and they were in the same ballpark, but they gave you different viewpoints. And mm -hmm. the ones from the sediments were lower. The ones from the coprolites were higher, hmm. suggesting that the signals from the coprolites were warm month representations were as the sediments were probably time averaged over the whole year. Oh, that's right. cool. Yeah. When you're talking, you also mentioned there were multiple stages that it goes through. I want to say like seven stages. Am I getting this right? Yes. If we think about how a coprolite is preserved, we can think about the whole process. So, Initially, the animal gathers the food. Mm -hmm. It can come from a lot of different sources. Then it's usually orally processed in some way, so it's fragmented. Mm -hmm. Then it's chemically processed in the digestive system. Mm -hmm. And then it's packaged together with, with gut bacteria, deposited where it can be subject to scavenging or coprophagy from animals that eat dung, mm -hmm. or washed away by by rain or river action. Under ideal circumstances, it would be buried rather quickly, 
And because of all those gut bacteria, that's probably the main reason why we actually get lithified coprolites. Oh, really? Because much of, of fossilization is mediated through mineralization by bacteria changing the chemical, the micro environment around them and facilitating mineralization. Mm -hmm. And since we've got zillions of bacteria in, in feces, they're basically just bags of bacteria, if the other conditions are right, we are able to preserve that. And I wish we could stop right after mineralization, but time marches on, right? Yeah. <laughs> so if we have great burial and heat or other kinds of uh, heat and pressure, over time, those, that coprolite can be changed even more. So then it provides less information. Gotcha. I imagine when you're talking about the bacteria sort of interacting with the coprolite and mineralizing it, do animals like tyrannosaurs that eat bone potentially, do those mineralize better because they have more calcium and things like that in there? Or is that not what's going on? That's an excellent observation. Yes. Most coprolites that we find in the field or in museums were produced by carnivorous animals mm. because of the diet the diet of carnivorous animals, the soft tissues and the skeletal elements have a higher percentage of phosphorus mm. and, and calcium in them. So with the bacteria there, they already have all of the elements they need. Well, <laughs> they're not doing it intentionally, but <laughs> all of the elements are there so that the feces can become phosphatized. On the other hand, plant tissue has relatively little phosphorus in it. So to actually lithify herbivore feces, you need an external source of minerals. Gotcha. So they're actually very rare. Hmm. So you said, I mean, you had some very memorable lines in your talk, but I like the one, it was like eating is an inherently destructive activity. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Eating kind of... Yeah, destroys things. <laughs> so you wouldn't you wouldn't normally think of looking to fossil feces for examples of exceptional preservation. It, it just seems counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. But we're learning from studies that people are doing, especially experimental studies, that it seems to take bacterial action, which means decomposition in order to set up the right circumstances to preserve things. And also sometimes just to preserve the, the chemical components of soft tissue in just the right way. Mm -hmm. So I was shocked the first time when we, f we discovered the fossilized muscle tissue in coprolites. I thought this does not make sense mm -hmm. because not only has this gone through somebody's gut, but how... It, it should have been digested. If not, it should have been decomposed before it fossilized. But that did tell us not only about the physiology, but about the process of fossilization, that it can happen very quickly. And the fact that people have found impressions of fur, I mean, really intricate impressions of fur and insects and the evidence for parasites, it just it seems like we're finding more and more things, even though, yes... Eating things should destroy them. <laughs> but I guess that just shows you about the recycling of materials back into the ecosystem. That's another thing that coprolites can tell us about. It tells us about the biogeochemical 
cycling of really important nutrients through ecosystems. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. So are there any specific nutrients that are really important in the coprolite cycle? There are important nutrients that feces can tell us about mm-hmm. in terms of cycling in natural environments. We see evidence of transfer of carbon resources from one animal to another. Now, that's the most elementary. I mean, I eat sugars. <laughs> that gives me energy, right? Mm-hmm. But also we can see transfers of important nutrients like phosphorus and nitrogen. Now, some people are beginning to work with nitrogen, but th- that's really hard to detect in the fossil record. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think in the future, we will be able to, to say a lot more about ancient recycling. We know what happens today, and mm-hmm. I, we should be able to see that in the ancient record as well. Cool. Is there anything you're working on now that you can talk about? Yes. Right now, I'm working on refining our understanding of the interactions between dinosaurs and dung beetles. Mm-hmm. So quite a few years ago, I published a paper with a, a dung beetle expert on burrows in dinosaur dung that are very distinctive, and they provide evidence that those burrows were made by dung beetles because dung beetles dig very diagnostic burrows. Mm. That's interesting. And we published this, but we didn't really name the burrows or or describe them as a certain kind of ichnotaxon, a Mm -hmm. trace fossil name. Mm -hmm. We need to report on these specific kinds of burrows from the Cretaceous so that other people can refer to those and perhaps even push the record further back. Mm -hmm. But the whole idea when we found the the burrows was so exciting because (laughs) prior to that, uh, we didn't have evidence that dung beetles were around in the Mesozoic. Wow. And so people knew that dinosaurs produced a lot of dung, right? (laughs) And that dung had to be recycled in some manner or another. But before our work, we couldn't say for sure that dung beetles participated in that activity. Mm -hmm. And people know about dung beetles associated with mammals. So this was, that was an exciting discovery. And we were going back to, to refine our understanding of that relationship. Yeah. Cool. That's very cool. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so this might be a silly question, but <laughs> we were just talking about it, and I thought, oh, might as well bring up, in Jurassic Park, <laughs> <laughs> there's the scene with the large pile of dung. Now that's, yeah, maybe you can tell us why that is a bit inaccurate. <laughs> <laughs> right. The <laughs> Jurassic Park dung. You know, I'm very fond of that scene, (laughs) in part because my boss at the time, Jack Horner, Mm -hmm. was consulting on the movie. So I think he was instrument. He knew I was studying dinosaur feces. So I think he probably had some input into (laughs) to having any focus on dinosaur dung in the first place. Mm -hmm. But when the when the scene appeared on the screen and I saw how giant the pile was, I burst out laughing because it was, it was bigger than the Triceratops, I think. So I justified it saying that it was probably because the zookeepers scooped it all into a pile. Oh. That's, yeah. that's the way I, I... That's a good rationalization. Yeah, rationalize. Because <laughs> you do see zookeepers doing that, but... 
Um, I loved it. The other thing was she just happened to have a glove that was elbow length. <laughs> I've never seen elbow length gloves. <laughs> and she really had to thrust her hand in very deeply and use all of that elbow shape, <laughs> elbow length glove. So I, I actually, like I said, I appreciate and I'm fond of that scene. Number one, because it brings plants into the picture right. instead of just focusing on on the T-Rex eating people. Mm -hmm. it, it showed, yes, dinosaurs had a great relationship with plants, but after that relationship, there's always a fecal product. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I liked I liked that scene because it it brought some reality into the, to our understanding of dinosaurs. Yeah, definitely. That's great. <laughs> so for our listeners, if they wanted to learn more about you and your work, where's the best place for them to go? Science Friday did a video interview of my work. Mm -hmm. See it visually, what yeah. we've been talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Great. We'll post a link in the show notes. Yeah. Well, yeah thanks. I'm sure they'd appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for taking the time out of SVP to talk with us. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you for being interested in dung, <laughs> fossil dung. <laughs> yeah. It's fascinating. It is. <laughs> Thanks again, Karen. It's always great to talk about digestion and dinosaurs. Especially coprolites. Oh, yeah. Or coprolites, depending <laughs> on who you talk to. Yes. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Anseromimus, which was a request from Dinosaur 4602. So thanks. It was an ornithomimid theropod that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Mongolia. And the genus name means goose mimic. It was named in 1988 by Rinchen Barsbold, and Anser is the generic name for some species of geese. The type and only species is Anseromimus planinicus. So this dinosaur doesn't particularly look like a goose, but other ornithomimosaurs have been named after other birds, so that was kind of the thinking here. It's sort of maybe kind of goose-like. Ornithomimosaurs are generally sort of like ostrichy, yep. so they got that kind of goose-ish neck. To them. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> the species name means flat claw, and that refers to its flattened claws. Who'd have thunk it? <laughs> there's only one specimen, which is a pretty complete articulated skeleton, but there's no skull or lower jaws. It was found in the Gobi Desert in the 1970s on a joint Soviet-Mongolian expedition, and is estimated to be about 9.8 feet or 3 meters long and weigh 110 pounds or 50 kilograms. It was possibly an omnivore, and it probably looked similar to other ornithomimids, but with more powerful forelimbs. It had these very long, powerful forelimbs. Oh, that's cool. You don't usually think about that with ornithomimids. Yeah. Or geese. <laughs> <laughs> so it also had large crests on the upper arm bones, and that was to attach to large arm muscles, like biceps. And it had long, straight, with a slight curve claws on the hand that were pretty flat on the lower surface. It's unclear why it had such powerful arms, but it's possible that they used them to gather food. The skull we haven't found, so it's not clear what it ate. But Anseromimus was lanky and fast. The five bones between the wrist and fingers, the metacarpus, were fused, and that also added to its strength. Also, the foot was arctometatarsalian, which means that the middle metatarsal is compressed and is behind the other two metatarsals at the top, which may have helped it with running. Anseromimus probably lived around streams and river channels and mudflats and shallow lakes. Other dinosaurs that lived at the same time and place included Gallimimus, Tarbosaurus, 
dinochirus and smaller dromaeosaurs, oviraptorosaurs, troodontids, and birds, as well as hadrosaurids like Barsboldia and Sauralophus, and ankylosaurids like Tarchia and some titanosaurs and pachycephalosaurs. It's a busy ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And obviously, our fun fact for today had to be about coprolites. <laughs> of course. <laughs> because we talked a lot about dinosaur coprolites, but if you start to dig a little bit deeper into coprolites, not literally, but into <laughs> the research of them, <laughs> you can find a lot of other interesting examples which aren't from dinosaurs. So this is a rare non-dinosaur specific fun fact, but it's coprolite related, so I think it's okay. So we have coprolites going all the way back to the Cambrian period, which is about 500 million years ago, or twice as old as the oldest dinosaur that we've ever found. One of those is from an ancient sea worm, which is like a modern bobbit worm, if you're familiar with weird sea creatures. I wasn't, I had to look it up. It's basically about a foot long and less than an inch in diameter, and it lived in a burrow and probably just popped out of its little burrow to eat prey. So there's a lot of animals that kind of do that. They hide in a burrow and then they spring out to eat prey, but this is a worm doing it in the ocean. In the case of this coprolite producer, it pooped its prey after digesting it into the burrow and then eventually moved on. And then obviously, since this was a burrow with poop in it, it's already basically wrapped up and ready to get fossilized because it's already buried and it's hard to get stuff in there. But at the time, some small hyoliths, which are these little tiny cone-shaped animals, moved in into the burrow to eat the poop, <laughs> at least the undigested nutrients that made it through the bobbit-type worm thing, and they fossilized along with the coprolite, so they got kind of preserved with it, which is pretty cool. So that's one of the oldest known coprolites. There's also a 20-million-year-old coprolite with a shark tooth embedded in it, mm. and it appears to have shark tooth marks on it as well, which led to all these headlines about how this shark was eating poop, which it appears was probably happening. Yeah. It's kind of weird. We've seen fish eat poop. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're hungry and there's some nutrients left over, little bits of fish, why not send it through a second time? Could have been its own poop. We don't know that it was eating somebody else's poop. Hmm. Hard to say. And then coming a little bit closer to home, We've found Neanderthal coprolite, which has been found from about 50,000 years ago, and it includes a lot of traces of meats and plants. And as a fun, a side fun fact. Oh, double fun fact. Yes. <laughs> Paleo diets are really biased based on what we found in the fossil record. Sort of like when we talk about dinosaurs and we start to get this picture of what dinosaurs were like and then we find a new dinosaur and we're like, oh, it was totally different than we imagined. The same thing happens with paleo diets. So ancient people really ate whatever they could gather and digest that was around them, possibly after cooking it, if it needed to be cooked. In Siberia, that meant eating reindeer. On islands, that meant eating fish. And in a temperate area, that meant that they could have a more varied diet. But a lot of our early finds of Neanderthals and our other ancestors came from places like Siberia. So we see this really like meat and fat heavy diet because that's what was around for them to eat. But that doesn't mean that it was like the super healthy thing that they were definitely going after because it was the best option. It's just like... You go for whatever's around. Exactly. That was literally the only option. And then they happened to fossilize or get frozen or whatever. And then we could see what they were eating. So don't take these diet trends too seriously. <laughs> That's the moral of this copper light story. But maybe 
don't do what the shark did. Yeah. We don't have a digestive system that's good for digesting that. There's a lot of E. coli in human feces. Yeah. And on that lovely note, <laughs> that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And check out our page, patreon.com slash I Know Dino, to join our growing community. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.